You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Can we put our hands together for Rory Shiner, who is our special guest today? Great to be with you, City on a Hill. Uh, Rory, you grew up in WA. Uh, thank you so much for trekking across to Melbourne and joining us on Grand Final Weekend. Uh, Rory, we'd love to know, we'd love to get to know you a little bit. Tell us, how did Jesus become a big part of your story? Uh, so uh, great to be with you. Really, uh, love and blessings from our church. We cheer you on from uh, over there in Perth and really are blessed uh, by seeing what you guys are doing here. Um, uh, I think the big moments for me with Jesus, I think there were three of them. One of them was uh, growing up with parents that love Jesus and love Jesus in an imperfect but authentic way. Yeah. Like I grew up and thought, I, I you know, they're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I couldn't. They were they were the real deal. They really did love Jesus. So huge advantage if you're growing up in that sort of situation. Massive. Uh, number two, went to Africa uh, after my gap year at school and met a whole bunch of people who were who understood the Bible in a way that I hadn't before, and that was just like thrilling to me. Mm. And then number three, going to uni, uh, going to a camp, uh, hearing a thing that I'd heard a million times that Jesus died for my sins, and for some reason that time it was like, oh. That's really good. And uh, so I think that they were the three big, big moments for me. Praise yeah. God. And you're serving today at Providence Church yep. in, in Perth, and it's an urban church, right? Right in the heart of the city. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of that church and, and, the, and the people you're seeking to, to reach with the gospel? Yeah, thanks. So uh, it was planted in 2009, which is maybe two years after you guys. Two years, yeah. uh, it started as a missional community. So we used to meet in homes rather than coming together. We'd come together once a month. And the big motivation there, we were sent out by, uh, by our kind of mother church, and we wanted to think about Perth like missionaries think about their mission fields. Yeah. That was a big thing to think, okay, what, what would happen if you flipped it and thought, no, this is a mission field. This is not, let's not assume that everyone on the train or on the bus like feels bad that they're not at church. Let's, mm. let's think like missionaries think. And so that's how it started. Uh, 2014, we sent another surge of people across from the mother church. I came across with that group and uh, we've since had a church out in Midland and a church in Bayswater, two kind of regional areas. And then we're in the city. And I think one of the reasons we kind of stalk you guys online is uh, <laughs> is I think we come up against uh, lots of similar challenges, cha- actual challenges of meeting in hired venues and trying to make them work and stuff like that. And the kind of challenges of being in, you know, obviously Melbourne's a few clicks ahead of this, but in a kind of secular post-Christian context, yeah. how do you hold out Jesus? They're the big things for us. Absolutely. And you've just written a, a, a great book, uh, The World Next Door, which yep. is a, a look at the Christian faith through the lens of the Apostles' Creed. Tell, tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind that. And, and yeah, how, how people might be able to connect with that. Yeah, so I uh, wrote a book with a friend of mine called uh, Pete Orr. He's from Northern Ireland. I'm from Perth. And we had these uh, kind of symmetrical upbringing where I was um, from a religious family, Christian family, but went to a really left-wing state school. Right. And so I was like the only Christian, like the only identified Christian in that context. And he was from Northern Ireland, but he was from one of the very few like non-church going families in Northern Ireland. And so I used to get teased for being Christian. He used to get teased as, um, he used to get called Pagan Pete. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Because in Northern Ireland, you can get teased by people who don't actually necessarily like love or follow Jesus, but you can get teased for not being like, you know, aligned with a a major situation. And so we, anyway, we both came at that and thought we've got all these buddies that we went to school with and so on. We really want them to know about Jesus. And so we wanted to write a book for them that was not super dumbed down. Like there was like a little bit of a stretch that you sort of thought, oh, okay, that's a little bit demanding. And to give people that kind of, um, Narnia wardrobe opening experience. Mm. Because both of us have had the experience in the Christian life that, and I hope this is your experience, that the longer you are, the bigger it gets. Mm. Like it's just more and more expansive. It just get Jesus gets bigger, God gets bigger, the Christian worldview gets bigger. And I thought, I don't want to be standing outside the cathedral mm. saying, oh, it's really good, it's really good. I want to say, you've got to come and have a look around. This is unbelievable. It's, yeah. it's huge and expansive and beautiful. And, uh, and so that, that's the kind of book we tried to, tried to write. Love it, love yeah. it, love it. Hey, uh, we're going to pray uh, for our time in God's Word and pray for Rory. Would you join me in that as I pray? Father, thank you so much uh, for the good news of the gospel. Uh, thank you that uh, Jesus is good news uh, for us, for this church, for this city, and indeed for this world. 
Uh, and we pray, Lord, that today uh, your gospel would be central in our thoughts, in our words, in our affection. Uh, we thank you for Rory and the ministry of the gospel, first and foremost, that rescued him. Mm. Uh, thank you for the, 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 the relationship he has with Jesus uh, and his desire to know him and indeed make him known. Mm. Uh, we pray that today uh, your spirit would move in accordance with your word in, in great power. Help us to grasp uh, the beauty of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and indeed his relevance. Mm. And we commit ourselves and this time in Jesus name and all of God's people said amen amen hey it is great to be uh, with you today and to be thinking about this kind of uh, challenging and exciting uh, topic the topic of free speech and I wanted to start uh, actually with a piece of art uh, free speech has to do with the question of uh, free expression can you say what you want can you express uh, yourself in the way you want to be expressed so I thought we could look at a piece of art to start with I think it's got it there on the screen uh, this is it. I'll just give you a moment. It's art, so you might want to take a moment just to embrace it, uh, respond to it, uh, let yourself uh, be moved by a piece of art. There it is. There's your moment of reflection, uh, of contemplation of the piece. So you can uh, see it up there. It's a uh, a crucifix. Obviously, that's Christ uh, on the cross. It's kind of a red background. A, a, kind of golden hue at the front. I don't know what you think of it. Uh, we could talk maybe um, after the service about your response to that as a, as a piece of art. I wonder if you agree. You can tell me later. It's, it does seem to be kind of beautiful. Uh, it, it's Christ on the cross. He's always, you know, one of the most sympathetic pictures, you know, to ever have been uh, put forward there with his head uh, hung and the beauty of the kind of, the, I guess, maybe the glory or something of, of the way he shines forth from the cross in his pain and his uh, suffering. You can take a moment just to kind of think it through. Now, while you're doing that, I'll, I'll also let you know that the artist uh, who made this piece of work, so he's a, a New York uh, art, artist, Serenon, and uh, he uh, put, put it forward. It's a photograph in 1987. Uh, I don't know whether you think it's got merit as a piece of art, but it won, it won several awards, including, including some major awards uh, in the USA. So other people, at least, uh, kind of thought it was a, a, an art, a piece of merited artwork. Uh, also worth knowing, just so we kind of come to terms with this, that he received death threats and hate mail for this piece of work. Um, like regular uh, hate mail, uh, he was um, uh, threatened with, with death. And actually, just as a bit of local history, in 1997, um, this piece was brought out to Australia to be displayed at the National Gallery of Victoria. And the then Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne sought an injunction against it being displayed in Melbourne. Uh, the injunction was not successful, uh, but uh, in the time that it was displayed here in Melbourne, uh, one patron tried to remove it from the art gallery altogether, and two teenagers came into the art gallery and smashed the glass with, with hammers uh, and uh, you know, damaged, to some extent, the, the piece of art. Another thing you probably should know is the title, and sorry to use this word in a sermon on a Sunday, but it's called... Piss Christ, and the picture is derived from the artist getting a plastic crucifix and putting it in a jar of his own urine. Now, think about that for a moment. Wait, don't think too much about it, but <laughs> think about what's going on there. Now, the artist himself, he's been interviewed many times. He, he himself would understand himself to be a Catholic and a kind of a follower of Jesus. And he said that he in no way meant it to be offensive, uh, but it hugely offended. There were thousands of people who took deep offense at this work from the title, from the way it was put together, from the sense at least uh, that something blasphemous, something demeaning, something mocking about Jesus was being said, uh, if not by intention, at least in reception. And again and again, there were calls for this thing to be removed. I don't know what I think. I partly chose this piece because it's actually beautiful. I don't want to put a, a genuinely offensive thing uh, up in front of a congregation gathered to worship Jesus. I don't know what I, what I think, but I think I'm probably offended too. 
in the sense at least, making fun of Jesus is a huge trigger for me because I love Jesus. Like I really love him. I think he's the saviour of the world. I think he's the hope uh, for all humanity. I think he died for our sins. I think he took mockery for us. I think he's the son of God who's loved by God and is glorified at the right hand of God the Father and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Massive Jesus guy. I love Jesus. And even the thought that someone might even accidentally be mocking him or bringing about the mockery of him, I, I think I do find that distressing. I, I, I don't like that. And yet I want that to be a thing that an artist can do. I, I want to live in a society where that can happen without reprisal. Which brings us to the kind of the puzzle and the question of free speech, which is what we're thinking about this morning. We're thinking this morning about free speech, and we're thinking about this kind of this kind of major political issue, this uh, this question of of the freedom or restriction of speech, whether speech should be completely free or whether it should be restricted. And as we kind of frame the issue and we think about it together this morning, one of the interesting things is that it's an issue that has migrated from the left of politics to the right of politics. So weirdly, if we were together, a city on a hill, but in uh, 1972, uh, in this lecture theatre, in this uh, cinema, and we were thinking about freedom of speech, you would almost certainly guess that we were thinking about it because it was a left-wing issue. Because it was a thing that uh, students were protesting about, that academics were arguing for, that artists uh, were campaigning for. It was coming like from the left. But as we gathered together in 2022, it's kind of migrated, not exclusively, but substantially kind of to the right. And so as we think about it, we've got to think about why we're talking about it today. Why, why has this issue come up? And, uh, you know, what, what is the kind of thing we're shadowboxing with here? How has it done that kind of migration. Uh, I think there's at least uh, three reasons that are relevant to our understanding. Uh, firstly, um, they succeeded. That is, the, the, the movement of the 1960s and 1970s that was arguing for freedom of artistic expression and freedom of speech, they kind of, they won. And so we now live in a world of HBO and uh, Game of Thrones and, and Mardi Gras and, and, and whatever else you say about our culture, it's not a culture where you think the most presenting issue is that people can't express themselves. At, at that level, you know, in terms of the, 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 the way the internet works and so on, that, that idea that we live, that artists live under threat of being censored and so on, it's just kind of substantially, maybe not entirely, but substantially, they won. But here's one of the things we're going to think about a little bit later. One of the challenges is that the winners of the debates of, for freedom of speech are often the ones who end up knocking the ladder out from the next group. That, that freedom of speech is a, in the long history of this kind of movement. It's the thing that once you get it, you sometimes forget to send it forward. Uh, the second thing about, uh, that shapes our, our understanding today is an understanding, a particular understanding of, of power. Uh, so in the kind of Marxist tradition of thought, uh, you, the way you, you think in, the, in that tradition is to analyse things from a vantage point of power. So you, you think economically or politically, your, your question is uh, not, you know, what are they saying, but who's, who's got power here? Like economically, who controls the means of production? Uh, or politically, who has, their reign, who has their reins on power? How did the monarchy get to where they are? Are they able to, uh, you know, how did they get there? Who, who missed out? Who is oppressed and who is not? Who is the oppressor? That, that's, the, that's the kind of the frame that uh, Marxist thought operates in. And, and in more recent years, uh, we've applied that to, not just to economics and to politics, but also to language. And so we think to ourselves, you know, who has power in speech? Who, whose voice? So you think, you know, if you're studying um, literature, English literature, it might have been years ago that you would be in a class and you'd be asking questions like, you know, which is Shakespeare's greatest tragedy? Uh, which is Wordsworth's greatest poem? Uh, is, is Shelley better than Byron? Or um, who is the greatest uh, writer of sonnets and so on? And you'd be thinking there about the merit of the piece of art. You'd be thinking, what is this, this text and is it good? Whereas 
in more recent years, we've turned and instead of saying, is it good? We're saying, wait a minute, they're all white men. Every single person I've just mentioned is a white bloke. And then I want to think, okay, so which voices are they privileging and which voices are they marginalising? How, how is language using, being used here as a source of power? How is power being worked out in this text? And that kind of analysis has been applied to freedom of speech. And people have said more recently, wait a minute, freedom of speech, who says? Who decides what speech is free and which voices are lifted and which voices are marginalised and who thought of this thing in the first place? Which brings us to the third one, which is maybe the most important one, uh, the, the question of harm. If we were together in 1972 thinking about freedom of speech, one of the kind of taken for granted things is the harm principle, um, that speech should be limited by harm, that if you do harm to another person, that's the, that's the limit of free speech. But now we ask, what, what is harm? Is, is harm just the thing I can physically do to your body? Or does harm include the things I say to you and about you? And so, you know, back in, if you kind of imagine that, uh, 50 or so years ago, if, if we were together, and if I said to you afterwards, oh, I felt really unsafe at work yesterday, you would immediately understand that then to have been about a physical threat, that I must be working on a, on a building or construction site and I felt unsafe because something was going to fall on me. But if I say that after, to you afterwards and say, I felt really unsafe at work yesterday, you could think, in fact, you probably would assume that I meant I felt unsafe emotionally, that I felt like someone was going to harm me with the words that they said and with the way that they spoke. And so as we think about freedom of speech, one of the questions that's in the, in the background is, is this harm principle. We just, you know, for the same reason that, you know, as Australians, we're pretty good with gun control. We're sort of happy for guns to be controlled. Now, reason tends to be safety. Like, I don't want to walk around the streets knowing that there's tons of people with guns because I, I could get harmed. And so you could mount the argument, and people have mounted the argument, that freedom of speech is the same, that if we don't restrict speech, then we're threatened by harm in the same way that guns threaten our bodies. And it's part of the, the shaping of how we come to the topic today. And I want to take those questions seriously. I think they are serious um, questions and objections. But if it's okay with you, I do want to argue for the substantial freedom of speech. I do want to put an argument for you, a Christian argument, a kind of uh, an argument that I think is in tune with the Christian uh, faith, to put it before you that on average, in terms of the trade-off, freedom of speech is a good thing that helps with love of neighbour, with the advance of the gospel, and is in tune with the kind of world that God's created. That, that, that's what I want to argue, and uh, thanks for your time uh, as I kind of put that before you. But first of all, we need to just define what we're talking about. I don't want to end up defending the thing um, that doesn't even exist. So what do we mean when we talk about freedom of speech? Uh, when we talk about freedom of speech, we're, we're talking about the, the right to express any opinion without censorship or restraint. That's what freedom of speech is. It means that you, you get to, be, if you're in a free speech society, you're in a situation where you can say what you want and... In the normal course of events, you're not worried that you'll be censored uh, and you're not worried that you'll be restrained in saying what you want to say. Or put it this way, if you want a free speech society, then you want a society in, in which as much speech as possible is as free as possible for as many people as possible. That, that, that's what you want in a, in a free speech society. But notice what we don't mean. Free speech doesn't mean that all speech, that no speech has any restrictions on it at all. Almost every definition of free speech from the ancient Greeks to the early Christian mission to John Milton in the 1600s and, uh, and John Stuart Mill in the 19th century in the, the 60s uh, kind of protest movement, every single kind of major definition of freedom of speech accepts that there are limits. Uh, for example, the, the, the harm principle that, that I can't incite violence. I can't use my speech to say, go and attack him, go and, go and harm her. I, I can't use my speech to incite violence. No one is defending, uh, defending that. And no one can do a speech. You can't yell in a crowded theatre, fire, and, and cause the kind of stampede that leads to harm. No one defends that sort of uh, speech. There's almost always legislation around vilification, around uh, destroying someone's reputation through untruth 
and so on. Uh, freedom of speech in, it does not include inflicting speech on others. You can't just hire a billboard and put the most obscene thing on, on a major highway. You can't expose minors uh, to objectionable material. You don't have a right to go to the Labor conference and advocate for liberal policies. That freedom of speech does not mean a completely unlimited freedom. And crucially, freedom of speech does not entail freedom from the consequences of speech. One of the kind of myths, I think, that grows up around this is that when you say, oh, I think we think we should have essentially free speech, then people think, oh, well, so you're saying that I, I'm not allowed to get offended by anything? They're not allowed to call, I just have to accept everything? No, absolutely not. That's, it's the opposite of that. That in a free speech situation, you are free to say what you want, but you're not free of the consequences of saying what you did just say. So in a free speech society, you can be racist, but we're allowed to think you're a jerk. You, you can say objectionable things, but we reserve the right to find you objectionable when you say them. That, that's what we mean by freedom of speech. And I want to give you these four reasons why I think, as a, as a Christian, there's a good reason to advocate for freedom of speech, even though, as you can already hear, it is a trade-off. And if you decide on freedom of speech, you're deciding on a whole bunch of misinformation, on the permissibility of blasphemous artworks, of things that you find objectionable, of fake news and conspiracy theories and heretical opinions and so on. And, and I think there's still a good case for saying, let, let's advocate for free speech for four reasons. You ready? Uh, number one, I think freedom of speech is a nod to the created order. Uh, you think about the opening passages of the Bible, you know, when God creates the world and he creates it good and he invests it with purpose and meaning. And that purpose and meaning is embedded in the creation before the humans rock up. Because we rock up on the sixth day, right? And it's already there. And God has brought order and form and meaning and purpose to his world. And we're put in, into the world at the end. And we're put in, as you've explored uh, many times in this series, as the image bearers of God. But what does that mean? I've got here a uh, coin. And, you know, for a little bit longer, we'll be finding coins with images of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II on them. And the image of the queen on the coin is a very ancient tradition that many rulers for thousands of years have done where they put their image on the coin and they put their image in statues and on uh, photographs and, and paintings and so on so that they can exert to their realm the truth that they are in control, that they are exercising their dominion over that world. That's what the whole purpose of having the image of the sovereign on the coin is. And when God creates the world, he makes this extraordinary decision to put his image in the world, not through coins or through pictures, but through us. So we are the image bearers of God. We, we are those who communicate to the world that there is a God in heaven and that he's good. The way I like to put it is to say that we are God's argument for the existence of God. Now, we've got arguments for the existence of God, you know, the ontological argument and so on. But God's argument for the existence of God, God's way of evangelizing the bunnies and the trees and the flowers and whatever is to say that, you know, you imagine two bunnies there. They're saying, I wonder if there's a God and what's he like and so on. The other bunny can say, well, he's like them. God looks like that because we are his image. And you have that beautiful story at the beginning of the creation, you know, when Adam is put in the garden, that God says male and female, he created them, they're created in his image. And then the next scene, Adam's in the garden and he's got this uh, project to tend the garden and take care of it. He's given that job. Do you remember the first job he's given, which is to name the animals? And, and the animals come and, and God, and it's this beautiful thing where he names the animals and it says, whatever Adam named the animal, that was its name. It's brilliant, right? I love that. That God's not a micromanager. That, that God's not saying, that God, he doesn't bring the animals to Adam and he says, oh, Adam, you can name them whatever you want. You've got complete freedom here. First animal comes, he goes, aardvark. And then uh, beaver. And then, you know, uh, he does, he's like, no, whatever you name it, that's its name. But he has to be able to distinguish animals. 
it's not within Adam's power to call a tree an animal or a river an animal or whatever because the, the, the nature of our dominion, the nature of the way we image God to the creation is this mixture of form and freedom, of creativity and discovery. That he can call it whatever he wants, but, but he's got to be able to distinguish an animal. He's got to discover in the creation the order that God has already put in there. And when we allow for freedom of speech, I think we're giving a gentle nod to the created order to say that, that God's purposes are still discoverable in the creation, fallen though we are and uh, maimed though creation is. We nod to the created order and we nod to our vocation as image bearers of God as we allow for the freedom of speech. Secondly, I think freedom of speech accounts for human sin and human frailty. So the two things that the Bible says are true about every single human being on the face of the earth is that we are finite and we are fallen. Every single human being is finite. Now, finite itself is not a feature of the fall. It's actually true in the, in the creation that, that Adam was not omnipotent. He wasn't omnicompetent. He wasn't uh, omnipresent. He wasn't omni-anything. Uh, as humans, we are finite and we are limited in our abilities and perspectives. And that is not a bug it's a feature of what it is to be the kind of thing that we are and so in that story do you remember when God looks at Adam and he says that's not good and what's not good is that he is alone and the logic is that because Adam is alone he won't be able to image God to the creation well by himself by himself, he will, he will be a distortion. He won't be a good witness to the bunnies about the nature of God because there need to be more of him, but there needs to be someone who is his equal, but is who is kind of also different from him. I think in the original creation, you've got the introduction of a kind of neurodiversity as Adam and Eve come into the garden and in their diversity, in the way that the man and the woman look at the world a little bit differently and see things a bit differently, it is they are drawn together and together they rule the world in a way that is more faithful to what God is like than if they were by themselves because the discovery of truth and dominion is kind of collaborative. It's not given. If any one of us tries to rule our world by ourselves, we will distort because the truth that we need is found in community. None of us is infallible. None of us is infinite. And so we need each other to image our, our God to the world in the way that we care for things. So we are, we, are, we are finite, but then on top of that, we're fallen. In the garden, we rebelled against God and we found ourselves fallen, estranged from him, bent toward evil. And in that experience of, of rebelling against God, our creator, that bent towards evil affects everything. It goes all the way down, including affecting the way we think about the world and the way we speak. And it affects everyone. It goes out to every human in the world. And so you see, one of the things that you can think is you, uh, you wonder about freedom of speech, you think, well, look, let's have freedom of speech. But once we've got the truth, let, let's just nail it down. So let's have freedom of speech until we arrive at the truth. And then at that point, let's legislate around it and say, okay, let, let's lock that one in. So say as a, you know, as a you know, fully uh, um, committed Christian, I think Jesus rose from the dead. Like I really do. And I don't think he rose from the dead in some vague spiritual sense. I think he really did raise, was raised from the dead as a matter of history. And so you think, well, look, at, at that point, let's legislate. Like nothing else. Just at that point, let's say to the government, hey, look, everything else, you can have freedom of speech, but just legislate out that Jesus was raised from the dead because that, that's definitely true. Should we do that? No. Because of the doctrine of sin. But see, you, you give that, that, that role to the government, but who runs the government? People. And what is a fundamental feature of people is that they are finite and that they're fallen that we don't know everything and that we have a propensity toward sin. And, and even if Jesus did raise, was raised from the dead, and even if that's true, we should not legislate that truth, partly because that opens the door for the next thing. But what's the next thing that will be legislated? What's the next thing that will be taken under the control of people who we know 
from the scriptures, like us, are fallen and finite. Look, here's the thing I'm going to tell you, and uh, uh, it'll maybe be a bit of a revelation. So think, think about this. Uh, everyone here, think about all the things that you're committed to, all the things that you think are true, all the things that you're absolutely sure that that, that is the case. Think about all your kind of convictions and, and campaigns and so on. Guess what? Some of them are wrong. Some of the things you believe right now are just flat out incorrect. But you don't know which ones they are. You, you don't know which ones. You, you don't, you've got no, no way of saying Because if you did, you probably wouldn't believe it anymore. But they're definitely wrong. And some of them are wrong in a really inconsequential way, like favourite city, favourite football club and so on. Some of, them, <laughs> some of them are wrong in really profound ways such that I guarantee that 100 years from now, our great-great-grandchildren will be embarrassed by some of the things we thought were true. Will be like, how could you have been so morally off-key in believing that? But see, in a free speech, if you don't have free speech and you say that, let's legislate that thing because we're sure is true, you're ascribing something that can be ascribed to no human being, which is infallibility, because we don't know. And so our best bet for coming at the truth is to have the freedom to discuss these things together. Third, freedom of speech, I've chosen this sentence really carefully, is in tune with the logic of the gospel. Now, I've chosen that word carefully, partly because there is this kind of debate out there. Everyone, actually, secular or, or religious, everyone agrees that Christianity is relevant to the history of freedom of speech. It comes out of uh, Christian context, especially out of the Protestant Reformation and, and, and so on. But it also has an antecedent in ancient Greece and so on. And so some people say, you know, freedom of speech is Christian. Other people say, well, it's not Christian, but Christianity is relevant to it. I, all I want to say, very modest claim, I'm not saying that it comes from the Bible or from Christian doctrine, but I'm just saying it's in the same key. It's in tune with the logic of the gospel. And I want to show that with a verse. Here's a verse that's going to come up on the screen, probably familiar to many of us, but I just want you to imagine you've never heard it before. And imagine, how do you think that sentence should end? Imagine you find this in the first, you know, it's from the first century. You find it in the sands of Egypt and you read a sentence that says, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore. Finish that sentence for me. If, if you didn't have the word Jesus at the front, I think you'd think it was from a Caesar. And I think you would think it would end, therefore go and conquer the world. It, it, it's Caesar language, right? The Caesar said this kind of stuff all the time. I've been declared the son of heaven. Um, authority has been given to me by divine right. Therefore, go and conquer. Go and take the lands by force because authority, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And yet the thing that blows your mind is look at the next verse, how it finishes. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Not like made up authority, not like authority. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go out with Bibles and, and a ton of water. Teach and baptize. Win the world by persuading, encouraging, urging. Teach our Saviour is conquering the world persuasively by addressing our minds, by addressing us as people who can understand and can come to terms with what he's saying. That's how he's winning the world through baptism and teaching and instruction, forming communities where we bless each other and work together. To, that's what he's doing. And I'm just, I don't want to ruin anything for you. And especially if you're new to the Christian faith or not yet a Christian, I know there's like a spoiler alert thing, but I read the last page of the Bible and he, he wins. Like he does it. He conquers the world, not with a sword, but with preaching. And so when we advocate for free speech, I think we're in tune with the logic of the gospel. And then finally, I think freedom of speech is a, is, is a way to love your neighbour. So Jesus wants us to love our neighbour and uh, loving our neighbour can involve advocating 
for them. And I want to say it can involve advocating for their voice to be unrestricted, even when that voice is offensive to us. As Jesus says, like, you know, anyone can like, love their friends. Anyone can love those who are like them, but the, 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 the love that is distinguishingly Jesus-style love is the love for your enemies, doing good to those who persecute you. As I said at the start, one of the uh, kind of sad histories of this idea of free speech as it's gone across the thing is that you get all these people who it, it kind of it got a chance to get going many times, uh, you know, in ancient Greece and then uh, in the in the Christian mission and in the Christian Reformation and like Luther was advocating for it and uh, Tyndale and Wycliffe and, and and all these guys. But what would happen again and again? And John John uh, Milton, the, the great poet, uh, was this that they would they would climb up and they would say when they were in the minority they would say free speech free speech, let us say whatever we want. We can persuade you. We want to put our idea out there. We just want to be able to advocate for the Protestant understanding of Scripture. And then when they get into power, suddenly they'd knock out the, the, the ladder and say, okay, we're done now. We, we, free speech has served its purpose and now we can rule a, a line in the, in the sand and say, say the freedom is now over. But I think we can love our neighbours better than that by advocating to say that their, their voice uh, ought to be heard and ought to have, we ought to have the confidence in the gospel that our gospel, the, the persuasiveness of our message can, can address their concerns and can eventually win hearts and minds. One of the myths of free speech is that it's a threat to minorities. Actually, minority groups are always the ones who advocate for it. Uh, Frederick Douglass, the great anti-slave uh, advocate of the 19th century himself, uh, born a slave uh, in, in America, uh, said that he was completely reliant on freedom of speech. In the 1830s in the South, they tried to introduce legislation to say that you couldn't even argue for abolition. Not that you couldn't have ab abolition, but you couldn't even say the words out loud, here's the case for abolition. And Frederick Douglass said to his movement, in fact, to the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King, to the more recent movements of today, we bless minorities and we bless our enemies by advocating that their speech be heard. But, but I, want, I want to end this one thing. Uh, Oliver O'Donovan, the great uh, Christian theologian, says that there is a freedom that is at the heart and bedrock of all other freedoms which is the freedom to repent. According to the Bible, repentance is something we get to do. One of the great opportunities we have as, as humans is that we can, this is the literal definition of repentance, change your mind. And the way you become a Christian is by repenting. That is by changing your mind, by saying, oh, wow, I thought God was this, and now I turn out to do that. I thought Jesus was this, now I turn out to do that. I'm going to change my mind. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, bring it on. No problem. Come on in. Come home, sinner. Come home. You can change your mind. That's okay. No harm, no foul. Forgiveness. Turn around. You can change your mind. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to upset you. I'm not going to say, oh, you should have known that already. You can change your mind. And as a Christian, you just keep doing it again and again and again. As we bring our minds before the revelation of God and we say, God, change my mind by your spirit, by the persuasiveness of your word. Help me in humility to think, I might be wrong and give me the grace to change. Let's ask God for that right now. Father, uh, we pray that you would give us the grace of repentance, the grace to change our mind. Thank you, Lord, that you don't make fun of us, that you don't ridicule us or mock us when in big and small ways we have to say to you, God, I was wrong. I did not understand that. I did not do the right thing. I did not say the right thing. And through the death of Jesus, uh, you bring us into your love and forgiveness. So, Father, I pray that we would be the first to repent, first to change our mind, and that we would extend that to the people that we love, in the cities that we love, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, guys, for 
joining us uh, and helping answer some of our questions. Uh, Rory, one of the things that you said that just really moved me and has like really stuck with me is that he didn't conquer the world with the sword, mm. but with preaching and teaching and discipling. And that's just like, you said it like 15 minutes ago, and I listened to the rest, I promise. <laughs> but like, it's just like really been playing on my mind of just like how good God is yeah. and how kind I think that is as a way of even thinking through freedom of speech. So great. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for that. Um, we'll jump into some of your questions because I, yeah, otherwise I'll just ask my questions, um, which maybe I will anyway. Oh, there we go. Um, should a Christian advocate for free speech, even if it will allow harm towards them and the Christian faith? Sorry, Steph. No, all good. Should have prepared earlier. Um, yeah, great question. Um, it seems like there are two values here. One is the value of free speech for the reason that all the reasons that mm. Rory articulated, what that enables us to do in the society that enables us to be with free speech. Um, but then what it means, I guess, under this, uh, to be a person of love, to pursue as part of that call to love, to care for others and to protect others? What does that mean on the mm. side of the re reception of speech, which could mean uh, harm on their part? Mm. Um, I think it is possible to both um, pursue, celebrate, enable, create a space for freedom of speech and also care for individuals. And in fact, I think that's what's so fantastic, one of the things that's so fantastic about the gospel. You know, yeah. our um, unlike any other people group, uh, we have a unique view about how transformation in a person takes place. And that's by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God enters into the hearts of His people, but by the Spirit that we call God Abba, Father. And then we're made to be like Him. Mm. And so what's the means of protecting people um, or being part of the transformation process so that people are speaking words that are shaped and uh, governed by love and also then people can be in an environment uh, where they're receiving love and that is fundamentally by I think proclaiming the gospel mm. by helping people um, give people the freedom to speak what's from their heart and then be part of that process of critiquing speech so that their heart can be shaped to be mm. more like Jesus I think that's that's the fundamental process where people will be safer than they would have been otherwise mm. yeah yeah did you have anything? No, that's no? perfect. Okay. There we go. Great. We'll jump on to the next question. You said we don't legislate because of... Yep. You said we don't legislate because of sin, but couldn't we argue the other way, that because of sin we need more concrete measures to help us do and say the right thing? That's a good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, yeah, really good question. I think that uh, that's um, true, as in... Um, there are things that we should legislate against, like violence and yeah. um, and and you know, I've, I, as in, I'm a free speech free speech advocate. I'd be perfectly happy if they worked out some way to uh, censor pornography off the internet, uh, and especially to make it not possible to reach easily. Mm. Uh, I, I hope there's a situation where someone says, actually, it, if someone wants to access that stuff, it should be hard to get to because because of, of the way kids and stuff can get to it. That's uh, that's all fine legislatively. But I think the, the problem, or at least the tension that you need to feel, is that mm. that logic has often gone that way in history to say, well, if it's sinful, then let's legislate it and let's get the government to to, to ban that thing, uh, that speech or expression or whatever. And I think the empirically in history, what has actually happened, which I think stems from our doctrine, we can make sense of it from our doctrine of sin, is that you almost always regret giving that power then mm. because even if it was a good thing, it comes back to bite you because you then said, uh, you've, uh, with what John Stuart Mill would say, you've implied the infallibility of the person that you gave it to. And that... That might be completely right on that thing, but then the next generation comes and the next generation, they're like, oh, let's legislate this, this, and this, and this. And, uh, and so I think you want, a, uh, you want to always hesitate at the point of legislating against speech and expression, not because of what you're advocating for at that moment, mm. but before where that could go in the hands of sinful people. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's a helpful distinction of the ripple effect then, I guess, of making legislative decisions in 2022. Yeah. And then, like you said, like our grandkids are like, oh. Yeah. And I think that's a really, yeah, that's a helpful way to unpack that. Thank you. 
Steph, I see you. No, it's fine. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, unless you can legislate the heart, mm. ultimately, yeah. I don't think this is a holistically um, uh, effective solution, mm. right? I, I think there is a place of legislation and even uh, organisations are putting together, say, you know, their own code of conduct mm. or, or our ex cultural expectations. Yeah. Uh, why does that exist? Well, that exists because expectations are just helpful mm -hmm. um, in uh, help, uh, seeing people understand the environment that they're, they're in mm -hmm. and what it means for them to conduct themselves within that environment. So for schools, for example, um, you know, there might be people who hold different worldviews um, and, and teach within Christian schools. It might be helpful to know what speech uh, they're allowed to say or shouldn't say in order to kind of honour mm -hmm. the environment. But similarly to... Um, this is what I'm, I mentioned before in terms of, um, you know, look at Matthew chapter 15 and um, the uh, Pharisees come and ask Jesus uh, about, you know, um, the washing of hands and, mm. um, and how to uh, respond to that and, and legislate that when there's sin in place and haven't followed the Old Testament law. And what does Jesus say? He says, well, um, you know, it's actually what's in the heart that, mm. that matters. And he says, out of the heart stems things like slander and selfishness mm. and, and, and greed. And so I think, um, again, that heart transformation is the holistic view. Um, you don't want to try and put everything in legislation. Uh, you can put some things there, but I think the bigger game and the more, the yeah. more important game is uh, to continue to preach the gospel again, be part mm. of that transformation process. Mm. And I think, if I just add, that's brilliant. And I think part of the consequences of having like, you know, codes of conduct and stuff like that. And even a free speech society is not one that is supposed to protect you from the consequences of free speech because that's part of how we're formed morally. So say I've got, say I've got a, um, say I've got a joke that I think is kind of innocently racist. I think it's a bit of a dig, but whatever. I don't want you, if you're the victim of that joke, to say back to me, oh, he can say whatever he wants. No, I want you to come back to me and say, actually, I found that really hard. Yep. When, you, when you say that, I know you think it's funny, but actually for me that's the, or, or a sexist thing or whatever, or like a, a jibe at the cost of gender. We want workplaces and communities mm. where you feel the consequences and where you can stump up and say a week later, like it's hard at the time, right? But a week later, say, hey, thank you for saying that. I had not understood that. I didn't realise so that's great. how it yeah. impacted yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. We're waiting for the next question. <laughs> yeah. I'll just <laughs> How can we lovingly respond when we are being silenced for sharing our thoughts oh. because people feel offended? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's important to understand why do people feel offended mm. uh, for the reason just Rory shared. It's yeah. in, I love that we exist as humans in relationship. A fundamental means by which we relate to one another is through speech. And that's modelled mm -hmm. to us from God in whose image we are made. Uh, you know, his, his very kind of revelation into the world was one of speech mm. um, and communication. And he communicates to us by his word. And his word, you know, teaches and corrects and mm. um, causes us to change. And so I think it's important that part of the relational process uh, and our own formation process uh, is to understand why are people offended? Uh, what is it that I have said that have um, kind of come in, in, into contact with part of their, their personhood or you know, their emotions which might be at odd at mm. which I say? And I think it's part of the mechanism that God's given us to become <laughs> better people, um, actually. Uh, now, how does that fit with um, uh, the proclamation of the, the gospel? Um, well, I think you probably can continue to share things and seek to do that in love. Listening mm. <laughs> is a fantastic way to do that. So asking, yeah, I think asking that question, why are you offended? Um, what is that, you know, what's underneath that that's important to you uh, that I have challenged? Um, then there's an opportunity to speak into that. So I think there actually might be more gospel um, opportunities uh, through that deeper conversation that mm. welcomes offence, that welcomes the opportunity to be corrected and become better as your mm. speech is criticised and, and ultimately then your hardened personhood's criticised mm. yeah. to be part of that painful process sometimes on, on your side too by yeah. welcoming offence. Mm. That's right. That's great. Yeah, because it's on us too. Like we have a responsibility. It's not just like go do whatever you want and then if you're offended, too bad. Like right. there is that, like, that, like you were saying, like that opportunity of I need to change. I could be wrong here. Mm. Yes. And we probably are more often than not, mm. right. but we don't like that. Right. Yeah. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yes. So freedom of speech yeah. is a, a freedom yeah. to be offended. That's and right. Yeah. Critiqued and That's to be right. shaped, and changed, become yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, Addie. 
Last question. <laughs> how do we utilize freedom of speech well? What are some guidelines for how we should share our thoughts and opinions in line with who the gospel calls us to be? Um, so there's a verse for this, right? Uh, so in, in Colossians, uh, do the, uh, um, always, uh, sorry, one better, um, always uh, be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping mm. a clear conscience. So um, I do think there is a, there's a gift that some people have, I don't think I have it, of being provocative. And I think they're like the prophets have that, right? Mm. And, and I think there are some people that you think, oh yeah, that's like, wow, that was on the edge, but that was really clever. And it kind of, it kind of picked a fight in a helpful way or something like that. But I, I don't, I, I think that's my gift. And I think that the thing that the Bible says to all of us is gentleness and respect mm. and keeping a clear conscience. So I think, I think, I think part of using free speech well is to have the confidence that the gospel itself is compelling mm. and so the manner can be gentle and respectful and clear conscience I think is when you you walk away thinking even if they were deeply offended um, before God I, I, I didn't take an opportunity to be personal or cruel or mm. Uh, or duplicitous or dishonest or, or whatever. So I think, I think that is, I think that, we, you know, we've got a verse. Um, yeah. That's how we're supposed to do it. Yeah, mm. great. Yeah, a, a, a verse which I, a couple of verses which I find helpful from Galatians. So in Galatians uh, chapter 5, there's debate about Jew and Gentiles who are now in Jesus and defined by, you know, not their mark of circumcision or lack thereof. Um, but in Jesus, um, Paul says to the, the church in Colossae who are trying to, sorry, Galatia, who were trying to work all of this out. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping of this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, he says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you do not do whatever you want. Mm. <laughs> but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So interesting, because he's saying you're free, you're not under the law. What does that mean? You're actually under a new law, the mm. law of the spirit. You're led by the spirit. Uh, what are the bounds of the spirit? Well, love. <laughs> mm. If you're outside the bounds of love, then... You know, you're outside the, you're outside the Spirit's uh, calling and direction in your life mm. there. So I think we actually are not free to do whatever we want with our speech. We are free to love one another with mm. our speech. Mm. Um, how do we use that well? Well, what does it look like to love? I think truth, <laughs> that's an act of love, to teach, teach the truth. But also to teach or to say not only what is true, but what is necessary. Is it necessary to say this? Mm. And what is helpful? Sometimes there's something that's true, but it's not helpful or mm. necessary, but it's not helpful perhaps in that moment. So I think they're kind of good measures for what does it look like? How do I measure the extent of my love or lack thereof in this mm. moment with my speech? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Guys, thank you so much for helping us unpack this. I'm going to pray for us and then we will continue in singing. Father, you are more generous than we deserve uh, for us to be your image bearers. Lord, I pray that we would take that job seriously uh, with the way that we speak with one another and the way that we speak in the workplace of who you are. And Lord, also in how we respond to how other people feel, uh, what other people believe. Lord, may we be men and women who are marked by your grace and who are marked by your spirit of truth. Lord, may we be truth tellers um, in this place. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.